HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome uh, today. This is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and we are broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's at 261 Moore Street in Bushwick, Brooklyn. Brunch is being served. Um, Today, we're going to be talking a little bit more about antibiotics in livestock agriculture with my excellent guest on the phone, Dr. Richard Raymond. Dr. Raymond is... um, Well, in 2005, after a long career in family medicine and as Nebraska's chief medical officer, Dr. Raymond was appointed the Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And for the next three years, Dr. Raymond was responsible for overseeing the policies and programs of the Food Safety and Inspection Service. In semi-retirement now, but not complete, he writes several blogs on food safety, especially in my favorite magazine, MeetingPlace.com. He has consulted with law firms on foodborne illness cases and is a frequent lecturer on food safety and public health. He is the food safety and public health consultant for Elanco, the animal branch, uh, sorry, the animal health branch of Eli Lilly. Dr. Raymond serves as a board member of the National Multiple Sclerosis Foundation, Colorado, Wyoming chapter, and is engaged in volunteer work with that organization. And Doc, you must remember to send us a logo or something that we can put up on our website for you, okay, at the end of the broadcast? Oh, I'll try to figure out how to do that, Katie. It would be appreciated. Sure. We absolutely would love to support that cause. Um, thank you so much for joining me today on a Sunday. I really appreciate it, Doc. It's good to hear your voice. Can't wait to meet you in person in a few weeks. Same. Um, now, you uh, published three blogs on MeetingPlace.com about antibiotics in the food chain, and there is indeed, as we have have both discussed in the past, a steady dump, drumbeat of disapproval of the practice, not to mention downright alarm in the public sector, in Congress, and around the world. I'm sure you saw a few weeks, uh, I think it was this week even, uh, the Surgeon General, the equivalent of the Surgeon General in, in England, came out saying that our overuse of antibiotics in our world environment is uh, going to basically render them useless sooner rather than later. So there is like a huge amount of um, pushback 
shall we say, about using antibiotics, period. But since you are the guru on livestock, I'm going to ask you right now, what are the antibiotics that are use, in use in livestock operations? Um, the most... First of all, Katie, I have to kind of clarify that sure. the numbers I'm going to use are based on weights, and, mm-hmm. and that's not really... An, uh, it's the best numbers we have, but some antibiotics, for instance, you'd give several kilograms for pneumonia and some other antibiotics, you might give 100 milligrams. So when you use it by weight, it doesn't really indicate the number of therapeutic uses. It also varies on the size of the animals, of course. It doesn't take much to treat a chicken compared to a prized bull. Right. So with that, with that caveat, mm-hmm. uh, by weight, the, the most commonly used uh, drugs in animal raised for food is the tetracycline category. That's about 42% of all drugs by weight sold Uh are tetracyclines, which are a very limited or almost zero use in uh, human medicine. Although they used to be very widely used, weren't they? I mean, I certainly remember being treated with tetracycline. They came out in the late 40s, and and bacteria rapidly developed resistance to the tetracycline, Mm -hmm. even when it was just used in human medicine, because... You had to take it four times a day, and you had to take it on an empty stomach at least one hour before or after any food or uh, dairy products were consumed. So it was very difficult for compliance. A lot of people right. just couldn't remember to take it four times a day, and so therefore it's a subtherapeutic dose, and bacteria rapidly develop resistance. And there's so many other drugs that are so much better now than taking something that you have to take four times a day. Right. I mean, compliance is great if you can take it once a day. And, and uh, azithromycin has kind of replaced tetracycline in human medicine for most of the common indications. Back to the question, after tetracycline at 42%, the next most commonly uh, sold drug by weight is, is a class called the ionophores. Uh-huh. Ionophores are used primarily to prevent or treat coccidiosis in poultry. Uh, I'm not an expert in animal medicine by any stretch of the imagination, no, but what I can tell you and your listeners is that ionophores have never, ever been approved for use in human medicine. They have a fairly toxic level in humans, and they just are not approved for use. The third most common category is a broad category called not individually listed. These are drugs that do not have more than one or two manufacturers, and therefore the FDA does not list them individually. I I suppose there's some proprietary reasons. I'm not sure. I'm not the FDA. I can't explain it. But this is about 12% of antibiotics sold for use in animals raised for food. And when I look at the list of the antibiotics that are in there, the quinolones is the only one that I recognize as as being used in human medicine. So I think most of those are, are, again, not approved for use in human medicine. So those numbers, if you just do the math, you've got 42% uh, never approved for use in human medicine and another 42% that I'm not sure I could go to a drugstore in Fort Collins, Colorado and even get it filled if my doctor wrote a prescription for tetracycline. Mm -hmm. They just aren't out there. Um, The thing is, though, is that when I was uh, researching this, um, which I did quite extensively yesterday, I did see that... um, uh, that uh, Dr. Ellen Silber, uh, Silbergeld, who is a professor of environmental health sciences at Johns Hopkins University, she said the following, bacteria respond to chemical structures, not brand names, and resistance to one member of a pharmaceutical class results in cross-resistance to all other members of the same class. And she goes on to point out that, for instance, um, ionophores uh, are, are similarly structured to... Um, you know, like bacitracin, which is a very common ointment that we use to prevent, you know, eye infections and and just infections in general on the skin. 
So I, th- I think, I guess my point is, is that a lot of these drugs, which don't typically uh, are listed in, in um, human medicine, are often have some kind of a chemical, stru- chemical structure that is very similar to that used in livestock agriculture, which I think is one of the reasons why people are so concerned about this, right? Well, I, I would disagree with her statement. When I can't, I can't remember exactly what you said, but you said if it develops resistance to one, it will develop resistance to yeah, all. Yeah, cross-resistant strains. And we've seen all. that with... And, and I don't think there's any proof to that. Well, I, I multi-resistant Hopkins, strains. Hopkins has, the, the scientists at Johns Hopkins have, cha- have challenged me publicly that and really? in writing with some the of my nerve. statements. And I'm, I'm stating my beliefs. I do not believe okay. there's any proof that an Iona 4, developing resistance to Iona 4, which doesn't happen very often, is going to cause resistance in, uh, 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 is, again, not a, a, a critically unique drug used in human medicine, and I'm not sure the proof is there that that res- cross-resistance develops. I will say that the oxy and the chlorotetracyclines, which is that 42%, I would say that there probably is a, a, a support for the belief that if you develop resistance to oxytetracycline, you may, the bug may develop resistance to doxycycline, which is a commonly prescribed antibiotic for sinusitis, although it represents Doxycycline also for Lyme disease. They, 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 uh, they prescribe that a lot for Lyme disease, for example, and other, other diseases like that. It would, probably it would not be the drug of choice for Lyme disease or Rocky Mountain spotted fever or mm-hmm. acne in teenagers. It, it can be prescribed, but it is not the drug of choice because oh. of all the side effects that go with it and yeah, because sure. of the difficulty in, complying, in, right. in compliance with taking it. Well, let's move on. Let's go to this. Um, in 2011, I think you said it was 2012. In 2011, you corrected me, right? The FDA announced a three-year... Excuse me, 2012. 2012. But even before that, I mean, I remember at a conference, it might have even been in 2010, when those first voluntary guidelines were announced. Um, So they they announced a three-year voluntary withdrawal of antibiotics in livestock feed and water for growth promotion. And they also called for the writing of prescriptions by vets, rather than having farmers who have typically in the past, if they see a sick animal, they'll just dose them themselves. They know what to do. But now that's that's being changed. So um, do you feel like in the interim time since that first announcement in April of 2000, uh, I think it was 2010, um, has there been progress in farmers and feed manufacturers complying with removing um, antibiotics from food and water supplies? Um, I'm not sure. I really have okay. no evidence. I've, I'm not into that mm-hmm. uh, uh, area of expertise. I've not explored it. I don't believe the sales of antibiotics. If you look at the FDA's page, the sales of antibiotics to animals uh, for use in animals has declined. So my guess is there probably hasn't been much movement in that direction. I'm not familiar with the 2010 release. The one that I got involved with was the mm-hmm. April 2012. Well, actually, but, I saw that the, that the antibiotic use has gone up 2% over the last two years. But that could be just because if they're withdrawing it from food and water, then they may need to use it more on the other end, right? So let's talk a little bit about that. So if you remove uh, antib- subtherapeutic antibiotic drugs, the reason for using them, let's, talk, let's, let's go back to the basics for a second here. The reason for using these drugs on a subtherapeutic level is, one, to promote growth, right? Well, yes, but, uh, but I would... Go ahead, yes. One, to promote growth. And the second is because animals are in, you know, basically confined areas. In other words, there are many of them in one small space or even not so small space, but you have a lot of animals in one one location. Then animals who tend to get sick, they want to like call them out right away or they want to give them a subtherapeutic dose so that something will not move through a herd or a flock very quickly. Am I right about that? 
Control and prevention are two of the yes. FDA-approved uses of antibiotics in animals raised for food. Yes. Right. So if um, if if vets now have to use, have to have write prescriptions for farmers on how much they're going to use in terms of trying to prevent disease within the herd, um, is that part of what the vet is going to do, or is it only when the animal is actually actively ill that they would prescribe a dose? Katie, under the FDA guidelines, and first of all, where I started to stop you and mm-hmm. then I didn't, uh, I disagree <laughs> with the use of the term sub-therapeutic. Okay. The, the doses that are used for control and prevention and growth promotion are all doses that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration. The dose is different than the dose would be if you're treating an active pneumonia. If you're, mm-hmm. and, and let me give you an example back to human medicine where sure. I live most of my life. Right. If, if I have a child living in a dormitory in a college and his roommate or someone living on that floor comes down with meningitis, the doctors will prescribe a very short course of penicillin for all the residents of that dorm to try to prevent the spread of that meningitis. They may have been exposed. They may have a very small... Uh, a number of those bacteria present in their system and a very small dose of penicillin will kill them. They don't need a full 10-day course of IV antibiotics. That is a therapeutic dose for a prevention or a control dose. So I don't like the use of the word subtherapeutic. It means, means it, it sounds like they're using uh, a, a level too low to, that, that will promote uh, resistance. And it's, they're using therapeutic levels for the, for the indication. Uh-huh. And we use them in human medicine all the time also. The example I gave is, is just one. Um, if a mother in labor develops a high fever and the doctor decides to do an immediate cesarean section, they will give the mother an IV dose of mefoxin before the cord is clamped so that baby is born with antibiotics on board just in case mm-hmm. it was exposed to a maternal infection. Uh, so the, 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 back to your question, I think the question was, will the veterinarians only prescribe for therapeutic doses to, for treatment of the animal? And the FDA says the veterinarians, their recommendation is the veterinary feed directive antibiotics be used in animals it has to be for judicious purposes how do you define though that that? how do you define that as somebody who runs a a, a confined area feeding operation how do they determine what is a therapeutic level um, for control and prevention i mean because judicious seems to me a pretty broad term and i think that could mean many different things for many different farmers no well, the FDA's definition is going to be judicious, will be used for the treatment of active disease, mm-hmm. for the control of disease in the flock or the herd, and for prevention of disease in the flock or the herd when, when there is a, a known risk. So, it, will not, it will not include use of antibiotics important to human medicine in feed as growth promoters or feed enhancers. That, that will end. So how are they going to determine uh, the ratio of difference? I guess, am I saying that right? I mean, like between the control and prevention aspect of it and the growth promotant aspect of it. How do you, how do you parse out that exact level of, of antibiotic I, dose if you, you know, I mean, what's, what's the ratio there? I, I, I'm, I'm not a veterinarian, so I don't know right. what they have available to them. But as a human doctor, as a medical doctor, mm-hmm. I know I can just look it up in the textbooks or call an infectious disease expert and say, I've got a, a college that's been exposed to Neisseria meningitis. What is the preventive dose? Right. And, and it's either going to be published somewhere or I can call an expert and ask. And I, will, I won't try to determine as a family doctor, well, should I give them a gram or a kilogram? or what? I'm going <laughs> to find out from the experts because I want to treat these kids 
to prevent. I know what the I know I know it's a grandma mafoxin for the obstetrical case I gave you because I delivered lots of babies and right. got caught up in that a few times. But I wasn't working in a community where we had a college, so I don't know what the dose is for college kids exposed to meningitis. Sure. Well, how do you think these new guidelines are playing, um, say, with the pharmaceutical industry, which obviously has a powerful economic interest in seeing the continuing use of antibiotics as both control and prevention and as growth promotants? I mean, you know, I know you're not an expert on the pharmaceutical industry, but still, I mean, you are involved and you kind of know, you know some of the players, let's say say that. Right. And and the players that I have visited with are going forward with a spirit of cooperation to meet these new guidelines. That I have to point out for your listeners that, that the guideline 213 is still in draft form, and that's the one mm-hmm. that will directly affect the pharmaceutical industry. They'll have to rewrite their marketing, and it's, it still hasn't been finalized, but the people that I have worked with are working on the messaging. They're preparing to remove that indication for their drugs. That represents a small percentage of the antibiotics that are sold to animals uh, that are used in human medicine and animal medicine as growth promotants. And I think the, the ones that I have talked to are willing to forego that use and that indication uh, to be a player, a, a responsible player in this uh-huh. arena. Well, it will be interesting to see how that plays out. I mean, that is, I mean, it is something that they're going to have to explain to their shareholders, after all. I mean, they have right. a responsibility to the people who are invested in their companies to maintain, uh, you know, a level of growth or at least, uh, you know, a good dividend every quarter. So I'm well, going to see how that happens. Katie, uh, all I would say there is uh, if corporate greed uh, overwhelms uh, common sense and, and medical appropriateness, uh, then the FDA will no longer do this on a voluntary basis. They will mandate it, and I would say shame on the industry if they force that to happen. Yeah, it would be a real shame, wouldn't it? Yes. Um, now, how do you suppose this transition could even be tracked? Are there any, do, in the guidelines that you're discussing right now, the, the 2012 um, you know, new guidelines that are being drafted, is there, as part of that document, is there a way to actually track antibiotic use on farms um, so that there is a way of, of counting you know, how much there using of X, Y, or Z drug? Is that I part of your draft guidelines? No. I think the only way you've got to draft to, to follow that is the FDA's annual reports and see what uh, the use of uh, drugs like tetracyclines has it gone down considerably, which would indicate no longer being used in feed. Right. Would it say not being used, uh, zero use in feed as a growth point? No, I don't know that we'll, we'll know that. Um, there is, in the proposed guidelines, there is a call that the pharmaceutical companies respond within 90 days in their, mm-hmm. and what they're going to do with their labels and their marketing and, and their indications for use and how they're going to re- re- eliminate all antibiotics important for human medicine from uh, feed as growth promotants. And the Infectious Disease Society of America, I know in their public comment period, asked the FDA to publish those results after 90 days so that they and others will know what the response was from the companies. That's probably the, the, the strongest statement that's in those guidelines as far as how we're going to interpret what the industry is doing. Mm-hmm. And, Doc, I mean... Why do you think, I mean, I'm going to just go off the go off the trail here for a second and just ask you as kind of both a consumer and an industry insider, why, um, 
Why hasn't the industry been quicker to respond to these concerns? Because, I mean, to me, this is like a massive public relations issue for the industry. Um, they really look bad. <laughs> and you know what I'm talking about. And I see this in your own, in the, own, in the trade papers for the meat industry. Um, they know it looks really bad. You yourself talked about them changing their messaging, changing their marketing plans. Um, I, I don't get the sense that they're really getting out ahead of this in any um, significant way as far as uh, allaying the concerns concerns of consumers and of, you know, World Health Organization, of other countries and so forth. I mean, I'm just going to say, just for an example here, we use 7 million pounds of antibiotics for people. And I understand that those are not the ones that are all necessarily used in the livestock industry. And we use 30 million pounds of antibiotics in the animal industry. Now, obviously, as you've just pointed out, all of the medicines are not exactly the same. There are some that never go into human medicine, but then there are other ones. And... um, it just seems to me that 30 million pounds of, of antibiotics in the, in the industry is enough of a, of a difference between overprescription in humans and overprescription in animals to, to kind of really make me feel very concerned in spite of your reassuring words here. How, how do you respond to that? I mean, how do you feel that the well, animal industry is, is going to be able to get out ahead of this? And are they really taking the steps that you as a, as a human doctor feel are necessary? Um. As you said in my intro, I do some consulting for Elanco. Mm-hmm. I have not been heavily involved with Elanco in the antibiotic issue. It's been, it's been on other issues uh, of some, some of their products they use for growth promotion that are not antibiotics. So we won't get into that today, maybe another day. No, but, we don't need to. But I do know that their, their messaging has changed because of conversations I have had with them, telling them that, 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 that what people are concerned about is if they get pneumonia, is the antibiotic they, they, they're going to be given going to work? And if it doesn't work because of antibiotic resistance, where did that resistance come from? And so I've helped with some messaging. And my answer to you is, as I already said at the very start of the show, 84%, the tetracyclines, ionophores, and not individually listed antibiotics, I feel, as a, as a physician, are not important to human medicine. I didn't prescribe. The last time I prescribed a tetracycline was in the middle of 1980, the, the, the 80s, and the patient had to drive 100 miles to find a pharmacy that even carried the drug. <laughs> so my, what I think industry needs to say is 84% are, are not of any importance or very little importance to human medicine, and then only as a second-choice drug for things like Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, bubonic plague, things we just don't see much of. So what about the bubonic? What we need to look at is the other 16%, and that's where the discussion should be. It shouldn't be the, the 13 million kilograms or 30 million pounds, as, as you said. It, it shouldn't be the total pounds. It should be the 16% or so that are medically important in human medicine and also used in animals. And to carry that a step further, I would say the FDA has done a pretty good job of protecting us, you and me, because first of all, they banned quinolones for use in poultry in the feed and for any off-label use. Quinolones comprised 0.1% of all sales in in 2011 for animal use, and that would be just strictly to treat disease under the guidance of a veterinarian. veterinarian. Cephalosporins, another restricted drug for use in animals, comprised 0.2% of all antibiotics prescribed for animals. Now, those two categories alone comprise about 25% or one-fourth of all antibiotics sold for use in human medicine, used very negligibly in animal medicine. I think, you know, that's the FDA. That's not the industry. That doesn't quite answer your question. The, mm-hmm. the industry does what the FDA has approved. And the FDA has said those two categories you're not going to use anymore, and the industry doesn't use them. They're, right. not, they're not sold for use in animal medicine for anything except 
the specific treatment of diseases. I think there's a couple other areas like the macrolides that we should look at. Yeah. I think the FDA needs to consider that. So that's the ZPAC. Probably half of your listeners have been prescribed a ZPAC for sinus infection. You betcha. And the CDC would say 80% of those were inappropriately prescribed by MDs because most sinus infections are viral infections. So we're creating a problem in human medicine ourselves as prescribing doctors. It's not all that it's not all the animal egg industry. No, no, and we, I'm not trying to suggest that it is. But what I am but saying is that's where the conversation that, always goes. It's, yeah. It's, it's the elancos of the world that that make and sell antibiotics. It's the veterinarians that prescribe them. It's the farmers, the ranchers that give them to their herds and their flocks. And nobody ever talks about the inappropriate use of medicine, of those antibiotics in human medicine. Methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, prime example. Methicillin is not used in animals. Vancomycin-resistant Staph aureus, vancomycin is not used in animals. Those are the two superbugs that kill people. Yeah, but the vancomycin resistance, um, which... Um is actually very closely um, chemically related to avoparsin. That's a drug that is widely administered in livestock agriculture. And, um, and as you point out yourself in your blog, it's rarely used in humans. And yet we now have, you know, VRSA, Versa, in ter- in, as well as MRSA, we have vancomycin-resistant right. Staphylococcus aureus. And that's not a drug we use in humans, but it is a drug that we essentially use an enormous quantity of in the livestock f- sector. So clearly that has some bearing on this. I mean, as, my, as, I, as that quote that I gave you earlier, and I know you don't really love the Johns Hopkins people, but I, I have the feeling that scientists are not, you know, there's no reason for them to lie about this. I mean... They're not making this stuff up, right? We need to look at what their motive is. Is their motive to get us to quit eating meat and poultry as a source No, of I don't think there is. And I, this is something uh, you and I will talk don't. about when we meet at that Agricultural Alliance, because that's why Emily is bringing me onto the, yeah. the panel there. Because well, I don't go to think their webpage the... and you can read what their motives are. And, and most of these people that, that are very, very vocal about elim- eliminating antibiotic use except for the treatment of disease are people who do not want us to consume meat and poultry. And they're very public yeah, but that, that that is such an incredibly tiny fraction of this nation and the and world's a, population. But it's a noisy fraction. It is. But look, okay, let's talk about this for a second. There are 35.5 million cattle slaughtered in this country every year for food. There are 110.5 million pigs. There are 9 billion chickens. Each and every one of these commercially uh, raised animals has been treated with antibiotics. There, that is no. I mean, that so dwarfs the human use of antibiotics that it's it's not even credible to say that these don't have a significant impact on the ultimate, uh, you know, failure of these drugs to control common diseases at this point. Methicillin resistance. You read my blogs. You've read this. I stuff. did. Methicillin was disco- discovered in 1959. 1960, we had methicillin-resistant Staph That particular bug has an amazing capacity to change its DNA to develop antibiotic resistance, no matter whether it's used in animals or humans or mm-hmm. just in a hospital setting. It's 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 amazing what what it does to save its life. Whereas plain old Streptococcus. We still use the penicillin that was produced in sure. 1940 as the drug of choice for syphilis and strep throat. That bug has not mutated. Yeah. Well, there it, is. It, there's definitely that is a, certainly a very powerful qualifier. But still, Doc, there, there is more come on. to it. There is more to it than just the inappropriate, injudicious use of antibiotics, both in human medicine and in animal medicine, which we do need to clean up. I'm not arguing that. I'm not arguing that. What I'm trying to have a level of discussion in my blogs and with others is that. 
to throw out all antibiotics except for the treatment of diseases, we'll, we'll have the experience that Denmark has had. Denmark mm-hmm. banned the use of tetracyclines in feed for growth promotions over 10 years ago. The, the amount of tetracycline prescribed for use in animals is up 50% from what it was when it was used in those low doses to prevent diseases because now there's that much more rampant disease in their herds and flocks. Mm-hmm. And the use of tetracycline, the exposure of the bug to the antibiotic, has increased in Denmark. It has done nothing to reduce the use of the antibiotics. So what... Just, just changed the, the way they're being used and, and the purpose of their use. Well, that... that oh God, we only... This, this flew by so fast. I'm afraid we're going to go over just a couple of minutes. But um, that brings <laughs> me to two points. I mean, honestly, this is so interesting to me. I'm just... I love hearing what you say. So, but what I understood about the use of antibiotics is that when you give antibiotics in a lower dose, I, I will not use the word subtherapeutic, but in a lower dose over long periods of time, doesn't that do more to promote antimicrobial resistance than using a very high dose for a short period of time? That's an excellent question, Katie, and I don't know the answer to that, and I've raised that question in my blogs. If you do a low-dose, long period, trying to knock off one or two bacterial cells, what is the risk compared to a 10-day course to treat an active pneumonia? Where we do know that when you treat active disease, not all those bugs are always killed. Some of them develop resistance, Mm -hmm. they survive, but they're in such a low number that you are no longer sick. Right, your immune but, system can overwhelm them. But but you have the potential to develop antibiotic-resistant drugs even when the drug is the right drug for the right bug given in the right dose for the right length of time. That does not guarantee that you won't have resistance developed. Which is the highest risk? I don't know. That question has been raised by the American Veterinary Medical Association, and mm-hmm. as far as I know, no one has been able to answer that. So Amazing. your question, I have to say, I don't know. That's okay. We're gonna we're gonna find out more. We're gonna research it further, aren't we, Doc? So now um, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> um, now let's go. Let's let's part on a more positive note here. Besides using antibiotics to prevent and control disease in herds and flocks, what other measures could be taken to maintain animals in confined areas without this form of medication? What what else can farmers do? I mean, the, you know, we have this model. It's not going away anytime soon. We are growing large numbers of animals in small areas. It's very easy for them to transfer disease. How do farmers deal with that if they don't have the access to antibiotics that they have had in the past? What, you, can, they, what can they do that's better? You really need to ask an animal husbandry expert. I would okay. be going way out of my space mm-hmm. to uh, try to even uh, begin a, a discussion of animal hus- husbandry in Cape Foods. That's I don't know. I know that some have been successful at it. I know it's a more expensive process, sometimes yeah. a more timely process to get them to market weight. But you, there are, you can buy meat and poultry that that says raised without antibiotics. Oh, it's of course. Just, it just you're just going to pay a, a bit of a premium for it. But the last thing on CAFOs, the com- concentrated animal feeding mm-hmm. operations that that are g- getting blasted by some. Stop and think about this. We no longer have to cook our pork to 160 degrees because we don't have trichinosis anymore. We no longer have to worry about our kids dying from brucellosis or, or tuberculosis from drinking milk mm-hmm. because the animal husbandry has improved so much that, that there are benefits to these CAFOs and there are risks. And what we need, the ag folks need to address the risks because the benefits, I think, outweigh the risks, but we always have to be looking for better ways to do things. And, and, and I think... There are examples out there in the industry that you can raise these animals without antibiotics, except for the treatment of disease. I, I believe prevention and control are still important. 
but I, you don't need them. You don't need them in the feed as a growth promotants. That I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad the FDA is taking another step to try to curtail that. I know mm-hmm. some of the criticism is they're calling for voluntary rather than mandatory. Uh, that's why I say the in, industry has to step up the plate on this one. And and how long will it take before we know? I think you mentioned like ninety days or something. It'll, at what point will they recognize? Will they be able to recognize? It'll be like at the end of the year they'll see how many drugs went into the agricultural sector and which ones and what dose or what poundage and well, it, that's how they're going to figure that out. Supposedly within ninety days they should have a response from all of the industry. If they don't, that's bad. And after the ninety days, IDSA has asked them to publish those results so we can all see if the industry is stepping up to the plate. We have no other way to measure this, Katie, and that's yeah. Congressman Waxman and others have called for better data. Uh, I'm not going to get. We don't have time to get into that one today, but we can't even we can't even look at the data that will compare 2012 to say 2015 and say, oh, see there it worked. It, there's a 15 percent drop in tetracycline. We we can't look at the data because the the numbers may stay the same because we're using more tetracycline to treat more diseases, mm-hmm. like Denmark is doing. Yeah. So and, and, until we have some way to know. What these antibiotics are being used for, we don't really have any way, I don't believe, to adequately assess the accomplishments. Well, I've seen people, I mean, I've interviewed many people about this issue, Doc. I mean, like a lot of people, like a lot of scientists, um, a lot of journalists. And one of my scientists, uh, James Johnson from the University of Minnesota, um, you know, calls this the biggest public health disaster that we face in the coming decades. And so it does kind of behoove the industry to um, take this seriously. And, uh, you know, as I said again before, you know, it's, it's a public relations issue as much as anything else. Like they have got to be able to demonstrate to consumers that they're doing everything that they can um, to address this problem. And I, you know, I don't feel like they're really taking it quite as seriously as one would like. I agree. <laughs> oh, good. I, you agree. I, I, no, I don't. I don't disagree at all. I think industry. I think. I think the discussion has been led by two sides. Mm-hmm. Industry way over on the left saying there's just no problem, right. and the ones over on the right saying we're standing on the brink of a public health disaster, or this is the biggest public health disaster that we see coming. And 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 I, I disagree with that statement too. I think obesity and smoking and and teen pregnancies. I think we have a lot of public health disasters that are occurring. Constantly. Well, I do and, too, but I think that if we, but if we get, if you get a cut and you get an infection and you can no longer use, uh, you know, a, an antibiotic to cure it, that to me is like far outweighs the issues around you know, obesity and smoking and heart disease. I mean, that because that's the end of operations. That's the end of surgery. That's the end of like you know what. I mean, just about everything there is human health, basically. Anyway, Dr. Raymond, we unfortunately must wrap this up. You have been so nice, very informative. Thank you so much. Um, Is there any, like, particular message you want to give to consumers, or is there a website where they can find more information about animal agriculture? And and tell them where your blog is. They should be subscribing to meetingplace.com. I mean, I think everyone should. Where else do you write, by the way? I also have to say I blog every other week for Feedstuff's Food Link. Oh, I don't get that one. I get Drover's Cattle Network. (laughs) Yeah, and I do some work with Chuck Jolly from Drover Cattle too. But but feedstuffs is a it's a different type of blog and it's a different response. And then I sometimes do some op eds for Bill Marler's mm-hmm. uh, Food Safety News. But yes, anyhow, I don't know if anybody's got a pencil in hand. But the one if they want to see the antibiotics that are actually sold for use in animals, and yes. by the way, these are for all animals. It's not just food animals. It's horses and dogs and cats. Uh, but the FDA report comes out annually. It's uh, http colon slice slice the 
standard www.fda.gov slash downloads, all lowercase, slash for industry slash user fees slash and the F, the I, the U, and F are all capitalized to start those words. Then, then it's Animal Drug User Fee Act, A-D-U-F-A slash. And again, the A, the D, the U, the F, the E are capitalized, followed by the A-D-U-F-E slash. Okay, well, capital where... U, capital C, capital M, 338170.pdf. And why don't I send that to you, Katie, and you can put it up on I'm your gonna, website. Yeah, that would be I'm great. I'm sure nobody wrote it down. I, well, actually, I know Joe was writing it down, my beloved engineer. Okay, but um, but yes, do send it to me, actually, and I, I can send it to him, and he'll know that he's getting it's right. Just to make sure, and that's the easiest way if someone wants to, that's just to see the numbers on an annual basis yeah. of drugs sold. It, it, the, the FDA... The title says, um, I don't have it in front of me. Uh, don't worry about it. it but it, but it's a, it's, here it is. Summary report on antimicrobial sold or distributed for use in food-producing animals. So someone that sees that, they're going to say, Raymond lied to you. But if they go to it, they see the second footnote says this includes companion animals like horses and dogs. Right. So why they put that label on there, I don't know. I don't but, know. But we know you would never lie to us, Doc. Well, that's why you're on this split, show. Splitting hairs to say don't use that number and don't use it because it's waste. <laughs> that's just splitting hairs. That's not the debate. The debate is the judicious debate is, use and what is judicious right. use. And what, what how do you define doing? that? Exactly. Well, you and I are going to be talking about that again because you're a fabulous guest. Um, I, unfortunately, we have to wrap it up here because I'm yep. really almost 10, 10 minutes over. But I will see you in May, and I'm looking forward very much to meeting you and your buddy Steve Sayer. He writes a great blog, too. So thanks so All much. Right. For We're time. writing a book together. We'll awesome. Steve and I are going to write a book. Well, I need you're to talk be... to you about it, getting an editor. You need to help me. <laughs> I'd love to. I'd be delighted. Right. Thank you so See much you for your May. time today. Take care. See you then. Bye. And thank you, my listeners, for tuning in. Next week, we'll be talking to the Humane Society of the United States. Um, I put a blog up on the Huffington Post a few weeks ago about the cattle industry, and I got a call back from them right away. So they're going to be talking about undercover videos in livestock industry and the agricultural gag laws that have resulted uh, from those videos going out mainstream into news publications. Um, and one last thing before we go, I'm changing the name of this show. I hate Straight No Chaser. Um, I'm going to start calling the show What Doesn't Kill You? <laughs> Food Policy and Politics with Katie Kiefer. So um, in the future, that's what we'll be going by. And when you're looking for me on iTunes or um, on the Heritage Radio Network archives, it will be either first Straight No Chaser, and then you'll be seeing a new name, uh, which is What Doesn't Kill You? I think that makes much more sense. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great week and tune in next week when we talk to the Humane Society. Thanks to my sponsors and thanks to my engineer. So long for now. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions at any time at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.